Can I afford organic food? The Double Bacon Cheeseburger, now just £1.50. As the obesity crisis deepens, the estimated burden on the NHS is predicted to reach £9.7 billion by 2050. Around the world, 39 million children under the age of five are overweight. Takeaway tonight? 2.3 billion people were food insecure in 2021, with 45 million children under five suffering from the deadliest form of malnutrition. Is it still okay to eat meat? The NHS is prescribing more than 300,000 oral nutritional supplements each year. Our lifestyles are busy and our days are packed with information, decisions and conflicts. But here in the UK, what we eat is harming us and the planet. There's a disconnect between where our food comes from and what that food does to our bodies. A lot of the time these are stripped-backed white carbohydrates that are energy-rich, which is great if you just want a boost of energy, but not good in terms of micronutrients. So it leads to poor health, essentially. Unless we start to make some changes, we're going to lose a lot of things. So I think losing the human element to that in terms of cultural biodiversity is, is going to be a big thing on the cards as well. Welcome to the final episode in this series of Unearthed, Journeys into the Future of Food. To conclude our series, I want to look at how food plants can also be used as medicines and play a role in our health. And we'll be hearing from some top chefs on how we can have a healthier and more ethical relationship with plants in our own daily lives, from shopping and dining to the way we cook at home. A better food future is within touching distance for all of us. Let's start by hearing more about how what we eat has always had an impact on our health and well-being. I'm Dr Melanie Jane House, and at Kew I lead research in phytochemistry, which is the study of the chemistry of plants, and pharmacognosy, which is focused on understanding the medicinal properties of plants, such as for drug discovery. My own research has been focused on edible plants and their benefits for health, and also plants that are useful for drug discovery. I mean, there are a number of plants which cross those sort of blurred boundaries, and they're used for both culinary applications and also medicinal applications although the extent to which they've been studied scientifically varies considerably. Some examples of plants that are used for both purposes are garlic, sage, rosemary, turmeric, licorice and ginger. But as well as plants that are used for medicinal applications, a number of edible plants have also either provided or inspired the development of a number of pharmaceutical drugs. Many people use plants for their medicinal properties and in some parts of the world they still remain a very important part of their medicine cabinet, particularly in regions where people may not have access to some of the conventional pharmaceutical drugs. However, much more actually needs to be known about the scientific basis for the uses of these plants. So to understand firstly if they're effective, but also if they're safe to be taken. 
So one study that Q scientists and collaborators carried out has been to test three plants in combination, which are sage, rosemary and lemon balm, compared to a placebo. This was a small study in healthy adults to find out if the plant combination could improve memory. Our preliminary studies suggest that in certain age groups, these three plants in combination at the specified dose we tested them at might have some potential benefits on memory. But we really need to carry out much more research to understand more about the plants and the mechanisms of action of their chemicals. Pharmaceuticals derived from edible plants include a chemical called capsaicin. So this is the pungent chemical that occurs in chilli peppers. This chemical has been formulated in preparations that are applied to the skin to help relieve some types of joint pain, such as osteoarthritis, and also some types of nerve pain, such as the neuralgia that can occur after people have shingles. And actually, there's a chemical in peppermint called menthol, and that's also been developed as a formulation which is applied to the skin to also help relieve pain and also itching. And actually, peppermint oil itself, when it's formulated at a certain dose in capsules, it's available as an over-the-counter medicine to help relieve symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome. There are certain species of yams that contain steroidal compounds, such as diastenin. And this diastenin has been used in the manufacture of a number of steroidal pharmaceuticals, including oral contraceptives, but also some anti-inflammatory corticosteroid drugs. There's a lot in the press about the importance of plant-based diets for good health. But have you heard about all the research that's going on into our guts? Research suggests that by making sure we're healthy on the inside, we can improve not only our physical well-being, but our mental health too. But do you have to be a qualified nutritionist to embrace the power of plants in your diet? Or do you need to absorb a thousand beautiful hardback cookbooks? Hopefully not. Our next guest is here with the facts and some healthy tips to help you get the most out of cooking with plants. My name is Dr. Megan Rossi and I'm a dietitian and nutritionist with a PhD in gut health. So essentially I live and breathe all things gut health and nutrition. A lot of people ask me, you know, how I got into gut health because historically it certainly wasn't the most sexy of topics, but I actually grew up on a farm in Australia where good gut health is very much inherent to my upbringing. But actually my first conscious encounter with the gut was actually quite a negative one and and that I lost my grandma to bowel cancer when I was in my final year studying nutrition and dietetics. And I essentially hated the gut, you know, for putting her through the chemo, the surgery, and then obviously taking her life. So I thought, you know what, I owe it to my patients and my grandma to find out more about this kind of undiscovered organ, so to speak. And it was at that point I was like, you know what, I want to dedicate the rest of my career to gut health. We are still just trying to uncover 
those trillions of bacteria that live in our guts. And we talk about gut health, it's this nine meter long digestive tube. But one of the key components of gut health is, yes, we've got 70% of our immune system in there. So immune system is really important. But actually, it's these trillions of bacteria, the different things these bacteria can do for us to really maximize our health and longevity and, and mental health. When we talk about these trillions of microbes, and the scientific name is our gut microbiota or gut microbiome, as part of our microbiome, we include things like viruses and even some parasites and fungi, which actually all work together to look after us. So when people ask, you know, what is an ideal gut microbiome? What does it actually look like? The truth is there is no single perfect microbiota for every single person. Everyone's unique profile means that they have a unique combination of bacteria, even identical twins. But what we see as, I guess, a key component to our gut microbiome is the diversity. So we see people who have more different types of microorganisms living within them seem to have better mental health, less sick days, better metabolism, more regulated hormones. So that's kind of the ultimate goal is to get as many different of these microbes in us. And I think more of us are starting to appreciate there is that two-way connection between our gut and our brain. And that of course is our gut microbiome. So we know these microorganisms can produce a range of different chemicals, some of which can pass that blood-brain barrier and communicate to our brain that way. Then there's also a system where the microbes can actually tap into the nervous system and communicate with our brain again another way and then lastly there is of course the immune system whenever i talk to any of my patients or clients about plants they're kind of like yeah i get it i know they're good for me but you know they're really boring and they taste really bland historically we were kind of like okay gets well so we didn't understand why people ate more plants had all this extra health and and happiness kind of attached them but we now understand it's because the fiber is fertilizer for our gut bacteria it has no other sort of like benefit for the human body but when the bacteria get fertilized what they do is produce a range of these chemicals called short-chain fatty acids and they do incredible things things like regulating uh, our appetite hormones they help with our like estrogen regulation they help with the absorption of nutrients in our body like calcium they help strengthen our gut lining and they even can help with you know supporting our mental health you know i want people to know that plants can be absolutely delicious i'm not saying you need to have these like boring soggy salads veggies for example you know roasting them with some olive oil and some smoky paprika you know in the oven 20 minutes 180 degrees you know you can make veg delicious whipping up like a walnut pesto is another really delicious way to kind of make any sort of plants taste great so it's just the simple things and you know if you're having Indian takeaway for dinner it's a case of literally just getting a can of lentils rinsing them and then adding them to your takeaway you don't need to spend hours in the kitchen or have this huge cost attached to it or change all your behaviors so where you can I recommend people try getting something from what I call the super six most days so that's our whole grains so things like our oat barley rye we've got our legumes so things like our chickpeas our lentils butter beans we've got our fruit we've got our veg we've got our herbs and spices and our nuts and our seeds dried herbs and spices i think are an underrated source of what these things called polyphenols and polyphenols are just these types of plant chemicals which have been associated with a lot of health benefits anti-inflammatory and uh, antioxidant powers so thinking about your own diet you might want to reflect have you had something from the super six today 
And I think probably that's another point is that people think they have to go plants only. And, and that's certainly not what we see is needed for good gut health. One of my key philosophies is thinking about inclusion, not exclusion. Think about how you can add some plants to it. Fascinating stuff. It's quite exciting to know that we're still working out some of the important properties the food we eat can have and its impact on our bodies. More recently, the phrase superfoods popped up as a marketing term to describe those foods that are nutrient-dense and which can be good for us. But in science, the term's a bit of a misnomer. The healthiest diets are varied and diverse and contain the right kind of nutrients for different individuals. No one food is going to be a cure-all for good health. With so much information and misinformation out there, it's hard to know whose advice to follow when it comes to choosing the diet that's healthiest for you and the planet. But one voice we're often happy to trust is that of our revered and much-loved chefs. Millions of us tune into TV cookery shows each week here in the UK, and our obsession with food means ideas on these shows often lead the trends we see in restaurants, supermarkets, and our own kitchen tables. That's why it's great to see so many more plant-based menus and exciting fruit and veg on our screens. But when it comes to sustainable practice in real life, what do real chefs have to do to change the world and keep their customers happy? Tom Hunt's an eco-chef, a food writer, food educator and author of Eating for Pleasure, People and Planet. Chefs are instrumental in changing the way we eat because they are the conduit that connect our farmers and our food to the rest of us, the eaters and the people who cook at home. When we're cooking every day and we've got busy lives, we don't have time, days and days, to research and write about food like some of us do. And sometimes we just need some simple advice about how to eat for the planet. Chantal Nicholson is a chef and owner of Apricity Restaurant in London. She was born in New Zealand and after 18 years in the UK, is focused on making a more sustainable and regenerative world through her work. Apricity is based on the notion of, I guess, regeneration. So looking at seasonality, looking at local food, looking at regeneratively grown and farmed food and looking at every element of that supply chain and all the people that are involved in it, which, which of course are, are the most important thing. It's a balancing act for me and everything's a balancing act because none of us are perfect and no one can attain that perfection. And I think with food, food shouldn't be perfect. We should embrace the imperfection of it. We should em embrace the fact that, you know, a carrot grown in Kent tastes very different to a carrot grown you know, in Yorkshire, for instance, because the soil's different, the people that are involved in it are different. And I think we've still got a bit of a way to go with food. I think we're pretty good with it with wine and terroir, but I think with food, we're, we kind of don't have that same level of understanding and, and that sense that things should look and taste different, despite the fact they're, you know, they may be a carrot, but they may be slightly wonky, they may be slightly drier and sweeter from somewhere. So it's just all about really embracing that rather than trying to make everything the same. Zoe Adonio is a chef, author, entrepreneur and founder of Zoe's Ghana Kitchen, 
a pioneering West African food brand. You are joining me today from my living room in Hackneywick, which is where my business started in 2010, outside my front door. I was really skint <laughs> after coming back from traveling around the States. At the time, Hackneywick was bursting at the seams with creative people doing creative things, including fine artists, photographers, poets, writers, all of the things. So these open studios were happening. I was like, okay, let me see if I can make some money by feeding these people. And I chose to make a pot of stew from my childhood, from my dad's side of the family, who's my dad's being Ghanaian. I made groundnut soup or peanut butter stew, as it was called in my house growing up. And it, would ha it had been a firm favorite, right, my entire life as a home cook when cooked for friends, so I knew it would go down well. And my friend made a sign saying Zoe's famous peanut butter stew. A year later, for the same festival weekend, I turned my flat into a restaurant and called it Zoe's Ghana Kitchen. And we were basically Ramo for those three days, people trying to book the next week, book, you know, a month later, and, you know, having to tell people, I'm sorry, this is my living room, actually, this is a, a one-off event. In the end, it, it was so much fun to do that I collected email addresses and told people, if I do it again, I'll let you know. And that's basically how it started and how it grew. I then decided that the mission of Ghana Kitchen would be to decolonize. I mean, I didn't use that language at the time because nobody was ready for it. But it was to de decolonize this idea of what is valuable, right? Because it was about returning value to people from the community in their own ingredients and food. And then also educating people outside of that community on how amazing those flavors and ingredients were to introduce them to it, to make it as accessible for people as possible, while at the same time kind of modernizing the experience of the food in a way. We can talk about value all day in the value chain, right? And the supply chain and food media and who has the power of the lens, right? And usually it's white media telling most the mainstream white audience, what is good for them, what isn't good for them, what's hot, what's not in food, what's trendy. So there's all this kind of prescriptiveness that happens through a really specific lens. Um, and I wanted to undo that a bit. My early menus were very traditional, in air quotes, because I was replicating dishes that my dad had cooked, and but through his lens, right, because he was replicating them out of context in southeast London with availability limited to certain ingredients and so on. So yams, plantains, okra, for example. And okra is a good example, actually, of something that I created okra fries to compel people to have a different relationship with okra, for example. But anyway, you know, increasingly they are. I mean, it used to only be that you could, like, maybe your local African corner shop in an African-based community or an Afro-Caribbean community. But that has definitely changed. Like, And there's loads of you know, Indian grocery stores that share our ingredients that stock similar things, right? Cassava, taro, cocoa yam, plantains, um, puni yams. They, we have loads of ingredients in common. So there's an ever-increasing amount of availability, definitely in urban areas. We're all contributing to making these ingredients more available in sustainable ways. On the one hand... By exploring foods and staples from different cultures, we can make our diets more diverse. But buying products sustainably is still a challenge. Food trends can mean supermarkets and big food companies suddenly have an interest in the same small supply chain, which can create new problems. What's happened is big white food <laughs> gets in the middle of all that 
as it did with palm oil and ruining the reputation of palm oil. And, you know, it buys up swathes of land. It takes away the natural indigenous resources of the communities there to be able to farm and sell and export and even just survive locally on those ingredients. It was highlighted to me on a trip to Ghana in 2018. I was in Tema Market looking for these things and I couldn't find millet. I couldn't find uh, grains of paradise. I couldn't find wensia, which is guinea peppers. And I was talking to like my, show, my local chef community in Accra about it. And they were like, yeah, this is like a serious issue now. It's really hard for us to find these things. And people aren't using them anymore because or at the same pace and frequency because Western influence has come into Accra at such a, a speed with outside money comes outside influence. And, you know, people want to go to Western restaurants. They don't want to. There's not the same passion for their own cuisine and food, you know. I also don't advise buying from supermarkets if you can help it because it's really expensive. (laughs) Support local, support small. Go to your local markets. Build relationships with your local market stallholders as well. Look at the back and see, okay, well, who's making this? Where was it made? Does it have a fair trade? Does it have those easy shortcut marks? So what other decisions can we make at home to make sure our relationship with food is healthier. We definitely need to be eating a lot more plants. And I think plants are delicious. I'm a good advocate of them. Um, I don't find it a a chore to to be able to to eat them or cook them and kind of celebrate them. I don't think we need to do without meat. I think, again, going back to, you know, the biodiversity of our planet, it's important, uh, uh, the history, the culture, the livelihoods, but we definitely need to eat less of it and we definitely need to look at the way it's being farmed. So for me, there are a few alternate proteins that I think do have a place. Corn being the fact that, you know, it's, it's a mycoprotein, it's, it's, it's essentially a fungi, which we're learning so much about that, that kind of network. You know, from a, a point of view of if you're trying to not eat as much meat and you want something instead, then it's a good alternative. We actually work with a mushroom farm that's just outside of London and Elstree. They don't use any peat and they're growing, so we get these kind of big, I mean, the most beautiful bunches of these mushrooms that are grown and delivered to us kind of just in crates so reusable so the whole process is, is very circular just that sense of, of, of flavor and what they can bring to a dish is yeah is amazing and that's you know even just as themselves but also in terms of using them in stocks and kind of as a seasoning as well as they're really underrated if you're eating conventional food or averagely grown produce then focusing on Ingredients like legumes, beans, and pulses can really improve your footprint because they are an ingredient that needs very little input. So they don't need fertilizer, harmful chemical fertilizers, and they need very little water to grow and produce their fruit or the beans. And so In that way, they're really good for the environment. They're also a nitrogen fixer, which is why they need less chemical fertilizer. It's a really good idea to grow your own fruit and vegetables, even if all the space you have is a windowsill, because it's bringing you closer to nature and closer to the origin of your food, which really is the answer, I think, to a lot of this. It's a disconnection with our food and its origin and even nature has allowed us as a species to start destroying ourselves and our planet because we no longer hold that connection and we're not aware of what we're doing when we 
buy that product off the supermarket shelf. And of course, there's the big question of reusing, repurposing, or using as much of a product as possible. We can all make a difference simply by reducing our waste and eating more plants. That will have a huge impact on the environment and reduce our carbon footprint. But if we can take that a step further, and through those cost savings, we can invest in better produce, going to farmers markets or buying that weekly veg box, that seasonal local veg box, ideally even from an organic farm, then we are really winning and we're supporting a system that is or has the potential to regenerate our planet. And there's another thing, get rid of the plastic to live it to your house. And as much as possible, you know, I try to operate a zero waste kitchen, whether it's in my home or, you know, out in the world operating. Even the basics, like a lemon rind you're done with, boil it on the hob, right, before you put it in the bin. And you're going to have this gorgeous fragrance going through your kitchen after you've cooked, you know, or all your ends of your vegetables, stave them, put them into a stock pot and you've made yourself a gorgeous vegetable stock. The seeds from like your bell peppers or your cucumber, anything like potatoes, potatoes that are going a bit funky looking and their roots are coming out, you know. You can plant all of those things and they can grow successfully on your windowsill. So the circular economy is about keeping things within the economy. I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean that doesn't mean financial um, for as long as possible. So it's in a way, it's actually going back to what the way things used to be. So you know, you'd, you'd buy something that that you knew would would last a long time, but you'd repair it instead of replacing it. You'd take care of it. You'd try and reuse things as much as possible. You'd just kind of have what you needed, rather than the kind of excessive things that you could constantly, you know replace for me it relates 360 from you know food to to people as well as stuff we all have to start where we are right pick something that you have grown with your own love and kindness and attention and then cook it either for yourself with love or for somebody else with love some great advice from some really exciting and clued up chefs there but what about you Maybe you love to try new things in the kitchen, but on the other hand, without a sous chef or someone to do your washing up, how easy is it to cook delicious, healthy and sustainable plant-based recipes from scratch every night and still have time to eat it? Well, never fear, we're sending you off to South London to meet chef and author Max Lamana. He's about to put you through your low-waste, plant-based boot camp and I promise you'll be inspired in no time. Today we're here in my kitchen in Peckham. This is where I film a lot of my recipe content, develop recipes, write recipes and of course taste recipes. I've just written this new cookbook, You Can Cook This. It's all about using the ingredients you have at home right now. We throw away one third of the food we produce globally. 25% of the fresh water we use to grow that food is thrown away. It hurts me to see, see food go to waste. I love food. I've always loved food. I love seeing the look on people's face when they try my food. There's no better feeling in the world. I think it all comes back to growing up in, in an Italian French American household. My dad's Italian, my mother's French, and food has always been a, played a huge role in my life. Knowing where our food come from is 
hugely important. It's good for your health, it's good for your, your body, good for your spirit, your mind. But of course, it's important to also use what's readily available to you and what's accessible. Food that's wasted isn't just wasted food, it's money, it's time, it's energy, it's transportation, it's packaging, it's labor. So if you bring food home, it is your obligation, your duty to use the food you have because there have been so many ingredients in that food that has been thrown away and wasted before it's even got to your door. So I'm using the whole ingredient, making sure that nothing's going to waste. And if something is inedible and is not meant to be consumed, I have a compost bin. My council comes and picks it up. So just gonna bring you around and show you the top five most wasted ingredients. The first one is bread. Roughly 20 million slices of bread is thrown away every single day in the UK alone. So I picked up a loaf of bread earlier this morning. The second ingredient is potatoes. Why are they in the cupboard, Max? Um, because it's probably the best way to store your potatoes and I'll show you more tips later. The next ingredient are bananas. The last two are, oh, don't look at my fridge. <laughs> I'm only kidding. Bagged spinach or leafy greens and milk. I have some oat milk here. Let's start with bread because there's roughly 800,000 children who go to school hungry every single day just here in the UK alone. But we're throwing away 20 million slices of bread. Something's not adding up. One way to keep your bread, your loaf of bread staying fresh a lot longer is dividing your loaf of bread when you bring it home. Divide half by putting one half in the freezer, store it properly, wrap it up really tightly and keep it in the freezer. You can go back to that maybe use it for toast later, or use it for breadcrumbs, or use it in a pudding. Bread is a great vehicle for so many recipes. I use some melted butter. I'm using a plant-based butter. Maybe some custard, like vegan custard, because I'm plant-based, so I'll use some vegan custard, um, a little bit of flour to help bring it all together, maybe some cornstarch, brown sugar, cinnamon, all the warming spices, maybe some stewed apples, chopped up apples, throw them in there when it comes out, maybe some melted chocolate and some ice cream. Roughly 4.4 million potatoes are thrown away every day in the UK. That's a lot, a lot of chips right there are thrown away. I love potatoes, I love using the whole entire potato and a lot of people I think what happens with potatoes are the peel, they see the peel, they see a lot of nicks and bumps. They see, oh, it's bruised, I'm not gonna pick that up from the supermarket or the store or the farmer's market because you want this perfect ingredient. Newsflash, there's no perfect ingredient. Actually, what people could start doing is removing the sprout. So all you need to do is take a spoon and go around. That sprout is called the eye of the potato and it's growing a whole new potato, which is pretty cool because you can end up having more potatoes from that one potato that you bought. The other worry that people have is that the potato may start to turn green and that's when you have passed the best before and the best time to use that potato. So I would recommend composting that potato. But before you even get there, the best place to start storing your potatoes is in a bowl that has ventilation, it's cool, it's dry, it's dark, away from anything that has like electrical uh, source. So like don't keep them near your refrigerator because a lot of the heat that comes off from the refrigerator will heat these up, will begin to sprout. You don't wanna keep your potatoes in the fridge because the fridge is also very dry, so it's sucking the moisture out of all the vegetables and ingredients you have in the fridge. That's why 
vegetables do wither and start to become quite soft really quickly is because the refrigerator may not be at the right temperature and it's pulling the, the water from the ingredients. I use the whole potato. I don't like peeling the skin because a lot of the nutrients is on the skin. So give them a good wash, give them a good rinse, parboil the potatoes for five to 10 minutes until they're soft enough where you can break the skin. Once they come out, I let them dry out and then press them down with an empty jam jar or potato masher and the skin breaks. I'll melt some butter and mix it with olive oil and garlic and then pour that mixture over the smashed potatoes, throw them into the oven until they get crispy on the outside, soft in the middle. And then meanwhile, while it's baking for the next 15, 20 minutes, I'll make a quick pickle, like a tofu whip that has a miso in there, some chilies, some ginger. So I have like this spicy tofu whip that goes on the base of the plate, the crispy smashed garaki potatoes on top, some pickled red onion and some fresh herbs. So it's a really lovely, vibrant dish and it takes about 30 minutes to make start to finish. Maybe your bananas are going a little brown, a little spotty. Maybe they're, they're reaching the end of their life. Freeze them, put them in a, in a Ziploc bag, seal it properly, airtight, keep it in the freezer. You can make ice cream with frozen bananas. Really easy, just blend it up into a, in a, in a food processor. Those natural sugars come to the, the exterior of the banana and makes the banana a lot sweeter. So you don't need to add any sugar, it's already sweet. Or you can make banana bread, you make smoothies. There's so many options you could do with frozen bananas. It's a great, it's a great way to also in, incorporate into cakes and muffins and any kind of type of baked good, pancakes. What I like to do with my bagged spinach or leafy greens, I know if I leave my bag salad open that I've used a little bit and I put it back in the fridge and just roll it up in the bag, I know that that's gonna go off in the next three or four or five days. I give it a good rinse in cold water, let it soak in the cold water. The cold water will almost zap it with life. It makes it firm and cr more crisp. At that point, I drain, I maybe wrap it up into a towel to take out a lot of that moisture, a lot of the water, let it hang out on the towel for a bit to let the excess water come off. And then I put it back into a container, seal shut with a maybe a paper towel inside in the middle. So that can also absorb some of the moisture as well. And that bagged salad, that leafy greens stay fresh for like two weeks. If it's not looking at its best, I like whizzing it up into a pesto adding it with your basil or chimichurri sauce or any type of like green sauce. Great way of getting vitamins in, a uh, great way to not waste food. <laughs> oh, that's some good milk. I'm using oat milk today. I usually flip between oat milk or cashew or almond, whatever's available. I'm trying a pea milk for the first time. You can make pancakes. You can whip it up and make a white sauce, panna cotta. Um, you can treat yourself and make a pudding with the leftover milk. Um, whisk it up, maybe make it into another sauce. I've started freezing my milk because then I use those frozen milk cubes and smoothies. I use them in coffee drinks. You know, it's funny, the th these three ingredients right here, we have milk, bag spinach, and some bananas, and these make the perfect smoothie. Who would have thought? Three in the top five most wasted foods makes the perfect smoothie. Thanks, Max. Well, we're already at the end of this podcast series. 
but the beginning of many exciting new journeys into the future of food, including yours, I hope. With my African heritage, the thing that strikes me most about how our relationship and knowledge of food is evolving is the realisation that the foods I grew up with in Zimbabwe are now so easily available in the UK. But I wanted to ask James and Poppy for their thoughts too. The thing that most strikes me about how our relationship and knowledge of food is evolving is our deepening understanding of the interconnection of all these issues. Connecting to the story of our food and land is not only good for us as individuals, from physical to mental health, but also in forging strong communities with one another and the more than human world, teaching us how we can live better for both people and planet. I grew up in a time of relative certainty. So at school, we would learn that despite all of its imperfections, we still had the safest, the most affordable, and the most plentiful food supply in the history of our species. However, today, despite well over a century of truly astonishing progress, the future is simply no longer looking so certain. You could argue that now, more than any other time in the history of human civilization, understanding plants was crucial to the continued survival of our species. And that all starts with the contents of our dinner plates. There's so much work and research going on to better understand and protect the edible plants that exist in the world and to explore how suited they are to surviving in a future where our climate is more extreme. But it's also a science that's evolving every day as we learn more about the relationships these plants have within their ecosystems, within their local communities and with global trade too. And we're really all beginning to see how climate action, biodiversity, health, human rights, fair trading and sustainable livelihoods are all connected through the plants we eat. As individuals, we may not have the power or the money to change the world overnight, but we can feel empowered every day to take action and make changes that add to a better world in the place where we are the decision makers, our own kitchens, gardens and allotments. We're all consumers and we all ultimately drive demand. So what is acceptable to you and what is not? We all have to start from where we are with the means we have available and that means a combined effort. It gives me hope that we will again be able to adapt and overcome the mistakes of the past. But only learning and listening to what nature tells us makes this possible. So here's my advice to you. When you get a chance, get a pot, fill it with soil and plant something. Whatever it is you choose, I hope as you tend it and watch it grow, you'll be able to think about the better future we're all working towards. And when you taste that first fruit, perhaps also taste in that moment the hopeful legacy we can leave for future generations. Because we do still have time. I'm Adley Richmond. From me, James and Poppy, thank you for listening to Unearthed 
Journeys into the Future of Food from Royal Botanic Gardens Q. If you'd like to explore the rest of this series or our other podcasts, you can find them on this feed. And the Q website is packed with more amazing stories and case studies about how plant and fungal science will save the world. You can check it out at Q.org. See you again soon.